This episode of Punk Rock HR is sponsored by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome back to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Sarah Martin. She's the CEO of Wellcoa, the Wellness Council of America. Wellcoa is one of the nation's most respected resources for building high-performing, healthy workplaces. In this conversation today, you'll hear Sarah talk about that, creating diverse, equitable, psychologically safe and healthy workplaces, but you'll also hear her talk about her passion for employees. This is an awesome conversation where Sarah and I talk about work and families and how stories impact us and more importantly, where the future of work and living are headed. So if you're interested in wellness and well-being and you're kind of curious about a discussion, whether or not workplaces can truly change, well, sit back and enjoy this fun and interesting conversation with Sarah Martin from Wellcoa. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Laurie. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm pleased you've joined us to talk about my favorite topic, which is well-being. But before we get started, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you're all about? So I'm Sarah Martin. I am the CEO of the Wellness Council of America, WellCoa, and I'm all about this work because I grew up being absolutely terrified of work because I watched it ruin the lives of the adults that I loved the most. And so I thought as an 18-year-old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, world-in-front-of-her woman, I thought to myself, could my job be fixing work so that I'm less afraid of it? And that's how we got here. Well, that's a huge journey that you've undertaken. And at 18, how prescient that you thought work was making people sick and that you wanted to fix it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how it was affecting the people you love? I think it's mostly my dad, although both of my parents were impacted in some way. I watched him already be someone that really struggled with purpose in his life. And I watched how the job that he was in really perpetuated that lack of purpose the culture was really toxic. It, it scapegoated him and, and made him feel like a nobody. And that was really tough for him. It ultimately led him to really drink a lot more than he should have. And he became, well, really dependent on alcohol and really bonded with it as a stand-in for that purpose he was losing from work. And that really translated over time into worse substance abuse issues with cocaine. And his life deteriorated, spiraled out of control. He lost his job, his family, and his home, and his freedom for a little while. And all of that was happening when I had to declare a major in college. And so I just thought this can't be what work looks like. And this is not going to be my life. So that's why I went to school for the psychology of work, which is what my graduate program was, industrial psychology, and did some research in graduate school on, on cultures that perpetuate that kind of deterioration, alcohol, tobacco, other drug use, 
and found out when I got into the wellness world, I started working for a health plan that this world was doing it egregiously wrong and it would not have avenged my dad what we were doing. And so my work since realizing that has been asking people to dream bigger about this thing. You know, there are so many questions to ask, but I'm real curious. Do you think your dad's story would have been different with a different work environment or do you think he was just wired a little differently? He had a really tragic childhood, so it wasn't like everything was stacked in his favor from the beginning. But his catchphrase used to be, if I had fill in the blank, then I would really feel like somebody. Or if I could do that job or show up like that guy, I would really feel like somebody. And I think that we have to be honest about the fact that we spend, you know, 90,000 hours of our lives at work and it's defining of how we see ourselves. And I don't know that it would have been wholly redemptive in all the areas of his life, but I do believe that it contributed to the downfall. You know, our stories are very similar that way. And I've written about this extensively. I mean, you're moving me to tears here. I have often wondered, not only with my own dad, but just family members, friends, colleagues who have had similar experiences, if that statement, if only I would have been promoted, if only they would have taken me seriously, was really about something else. And even if you gave something like that to my dad, because my dad, maybe once or twice in his career, had been promoted, didn't really seem to solve a problem. I want to kind of establish whether, and maybe it's a chicken and an egg discussion, is it work or is it life that needs to come first? Or maybe there's no choice that needs to to be made. Maybe they're the same thing. I think that we ask a lot of lofty things of our employees. You're, what you're saying is, and I really appreciate, Laurie, this pushing in on this conversation and how it intersects with your story as well. It's reminding me of that whole bring your whole self to work argument. And at Wellcoa, it's like, we've been talking a lot about this. These are really lofty things we're asking of our employees, like find purpose in your work, bring your whole self to work, creating environments that allow you to thrive and flourish. And we need to be honest with ourselves that maybe that isn't what employees need at all to exist exactly your point. We just need to first do no harm. Have we created an environment that meets basic human needs, allows people to feel respected? Do they have dignity? And do they have enough money to, do they have 40% you know, net disposable income? Can they actually afford their lives because of our compensation structure? And if we can just do that stuff, then maybe yours and my conversation, or at least the one about well-being, becomes a lot less interesting, which ultimately working for a nonprofit, I would love that. I would love to put ourselves out of business. Well, I certainly wish you nothing but the best of luck with that. I think your mission, though, is so timely. Maybe we can talk a little bit about Wellcoa's specific mission and also how the organization defines well-being. So what is it that you do and what is well-being? So the way that we define well-being is across seven aspects, and you can find them on our website. But what we're really talking about is basic human needs. And we're and for Wellcoa, those are needs that we think that work can impact. So there's other needs that people have that you know, spiritual and otherwise, that may not really be something that the employer can really make an impact in. But for us, it's about beyond physical health, having those needs met that really allow you to meet all the goals that you have for yourself. It's not something that you're always trying to achieve. It's something that's walking alongside you, your well-being. And any point you can tap into it, it's always available to you. That's something that our COO, Maggie Goff, always talks about. It's not something the organization can paint a picture for you to help you understand. It's, it has to be very personal to you. So for Wellcoa, what we do is provide evaluation, training, resources. We have 4,000 member organizations nationwide. Their impact spans 13 million employees. So we have quite an impact or ability to make an impact. And we use 
real business data to bring our members that resource, those trainings and recommendations for their well-being strategies. And so we like to say there's a lot of things you can go out and buy when it comes to well-being. And I think a lot of people think about that when they think about, I'm going to go do well-being. They think, all right, what do I need to buy? Tech platform or an app or a coaching service for my people. We work with those folks to help them figure out what to build and how to speak to the buyers of their product. But what we ultimately do is help professionals in the HR and broker communities understand how to weave well-being into the fabric of how how they do business or how their clients do business and ensure that their wellness spend is well spent. Well, when I think about the wellness spend, you're right, though, that much of it goes to technology. Can you talk about that space, that industry? Because a lot of people now associate a platform or an app or, or whatever with wellness instead of the way it used to be, which just a couple of years ago was yoga or 5K. And before that, it was weight loss and smoking cessation. So what's the role of tech right now? Well, the reality is for most companies, if you have a thousand employees as the bottom threshold, you have one full-time dedicated person who's thinking about about wellness. And if you have less than a thousand employees, you have half or less of one. It's someone in HR who is doing multiple things and one of them happens to be wellness. So when you have a problem to solve, you have to go out and buy something very often to help you solve it, whether it be a resource or data collection tool or what have you. I think what people get mixed up in is they don't understand one, what the goals are for their well-being strategy first, what their leaders are expecting, what other collaborative tools they have across their organization that they could leverage to go ahead and start making some grassroots kinds of changes, solve the problem first, a sense for what cultural barriers exist that might be standing in the way. And so what we often see is while there are really amazing HR tech vendors out there, and there's a lot of them and that industry keeps growing and it gets very confusing and really overwhelming. We see that we are over relying on those vendors when what we need to do is understand first what our goals are and then figure out what we might want to plug in from a resource perspective to help us meet those. And the vendors want that too. The vendors don't want to be over relied on. You can only do so much. So we often say so many companies think that to do wellness means to buy a wellness vendor service or platform and drop it on top of their shitty culture and then expect wonderful things to happen. And the wellness vendor isn't successful and the company isn't successful. And ultimately they want to fire the wellness vendor and hire another one. But what they don't realize is they're not optimized to deliver on well-being for their people. And that's what Wellcoa does. We help them figure out whether they're optimized. And then we help them figure out if they need to go buy something. And if so, what to buy to help them meet their needs. And we're completely agnostic in that space. We don't benefit from any of those decisions. You know, it's fascinating to me on a lot of levels that companies are trying to solve well-being problems when they do have these shitty cultures. So who is speaking truth to power? Who is having that tough conversation with the CHRO or CEO saying, there's no way, this is not going to happen. You know, the problem is you. The problem isn't your sweaty, out of shape workforce that you like to blame, right? The problem is that you don't create a psychologically safe work environment. Who has that conversation? It's a really difficult conversation to have. And one of our fears is that right now, in the midst of this disruption from the past two years, leaders have really actually awakened to a new awareness of both the value and the breadth of what workplace well-being is. They may be asking more questions or they are more curious, but it's a crucial time in the industry. And one of our big fears, one of the things that keeps me up at night is the people that have been leading the strategic work are often in the HR space and they don't have that direct line to leadership. 
and leaders aren't coming to them and asking for their help in solving these problems. And the reality is like they have the solution, but leaders are going to have to give them a wider scope of influence to get that work done. But I can guarantee that no one in the organization knows more about what is standing in the gap between employees and their well-being than your wellness manager or your wellness coordinator, or even in a smaller company that HR generalist who initially had this work thrust on them, but has since become quite a high acumen professional in this space. And we say to them, this is your moment. They were made for this moment. So what we try to do to really directly answer your question, Laurie, is we try to help arm them with the data. And we do a lot of benchmarking across the thousands of organizations we work with. So if they get that opportunity and we're doing everything we can right now to help them elevate in that way, when they get that opportunity, they can say, it's not necessarily me. The Wellness Council of America is benchmarking these organizations. And they found that when CEOs do these six things, performance across the other benchmarks increases by this amount. And by the way, I've already written your communication structure. Here's some ideas. I have some questions for you. We have like facilitation guides around all of that. So we can help them get there and get that audience. But right now, the majority of the army of people who are doing this work are not in the thought leadership space to be able to impact at the highest level of the organization, which is a concern that we have. I would imagine that the training materials that Wakoa provides to HR generalists, business partners, CHROs have changed over the past two years. Can you tell me how they've changed and what they look like right now? So we have this really powerful analytics tool called the Well Workplace Checklist that already you can plug in what your goals are and it spits out to you specific recommendations as those goals evolve. And so in some regard, we were really well positioned at the beginning of the pandemic, even though no one really knew how things were going to change. We had a tool that took in what your biggest goals were, your biggest problems were, and gave you meaningful ideas. And then that is a living, breathing application. So as data inputs go in, the benchmarks automatically change. So you can see in real time how others' programs are also shifting to respond, which I think is really valuable. Philosophically, we were really bold in our messaging strategy and our resource creation strategy. For decades, our industry has been giving people life rafts in the form of a wellness program where I'm drowning and my employer throws me a life raft and that's going to attempt to help me recover my well-being. And it's like we're a bunch of like Holden Caulfields, like catching employees in the ride, you know, like as the right before they fall off the cliff. And I think a better question might be, why do so many of our employees need life rafts? Or an even better question is, who is upstream throwing my employees in the river? That I think is the ultimate question, right? Like, why are they getting in the water in the first place? That's insane. And, you know, as much as I think Walcoa is so needed, I think there's just this global conversation right now that we're having around the quality of life and being life first instead of work first. And what does that mean? And how do we earn income? And all of these conversations are so important. So while you're focused on your clients and your members today, what are you thinking about when it comes to the future of work and the future of living? Exactly to your point, we are generating resources and training and skill building around our members, the people doing this work, also understanding that there are societal factors, health and equity, racial disparities, growing economic divides, that we have to be honest and say, they keep some people from the resources that they need for basic survival. And we believe that this is not a completely separate body of work, this problem that is in the broader climate that you're describing, than the work of reshaping the organizations that are part of putting barriers on people and keeping them from reaching their full potential. So for us, even in the near future, we are really trying to help our members understand that link between 
safety and security and dignity and ultimately the well-being goals that they thought were the most immediate goals. And we're saying the future of work is going to require that we might need to go back to a point of departure and solve some basic other needs first. Well, you do so much research in the world of work, the world of living, right? Just the way we exist. And I am so cynical. (laughs) This is just my POV in this world. But I know you must find some real optimistic trends about people, the way they interact, what they hope, what they dream for. So what are you optimistic about in your industry? I have two things that I'm most optimistic about. And one I referenced briefly, but I'll just restate uh, in slightly different terms. I think that The fact that people are having really nuanced, open, curious conversations. They're asking more beautiful questions. E.E. Cummings always said, and I always quote, always the more beautiful answer who asks the more beautiful question about what it means to be well at work and what the organization's role is in getting there. And the disruption of the pandemic was exactly what we needed to blow up the medicalized paradigm of what well-being is. And now we just need to be ready to chart a course forward. So that makes me optimistic. I think the other thing that makes me optimistic is that we have Walcoa has the capability of when we understand what's working well. We were actually just evaluated by a third-party organization, the Returns on Wellbeing Institute, and they wanted to know what's working well and what seems to be common amongst the companies that are platinum-level well-workplace awardees. And they did find some trends. And so what makes me excited about that, because I love doing the work, is now that we know what those trends are, we can help more organizations optimized to there. And we have 4,000 organizations who are listening that can impact 13 million employees' lives. So it's not everyone. We have not tapped our total available market, but that can make a huge change for a large percentage of employers and employees. That makes me optimistic. So I love your language because when you talk about organizations, you also are employee-centric. And I would be remiss if I didn't applaud you for that and call that out and wonder if that's intentional, if that's something that you do with great purpose, or if that's just like it is in your DNA. Organizations are people, because a lot of times when I speak with leaders of associations, they're very focused on members being an individual state, right, or a company. And you always bring it down to the employee. Is that a choice? It's a pretty intentional pendulum swing for our industry that was built at least as it exists today, Walcoa predates this, but our industry as it exists today was built on this idea that employees are broken and if we can fix them, then we'll have better organizational outcomes. And so if we don't start talking about the role that an organization has on its people and and what their obligation is to to its people, and then ultimately what the positive outcomes close loop back to the organization will be as a result of doing that, then we're never going to actually make an impact on employee well-being. So I think that's one reason. And then maybe my leading heart secondary reason is just that it disarms people. When I tell the story of my dad, I always start my keynotes that way very often because people don't want to hear from the Wellness Council of America. You know what I mean? I do. They want to hear that there is a human element that they can impact and they want to see themselves in their work. And they want to see themselves in my work. And that's been a great strategy to help onboard people to what the mission of our organization is and help them see it more beautifully. Well, I have one final question because what you do for a living is so intertwined with your life story and your DNA, right? So I know this from my own life experience. I've had to find almost like a third path where I'm doing something else other than working and talking about my family of origin, right? Like I have to go volunteer. I have to spend time with 
cats. I have to exercise. What do you do to maintain good mental health and your own well-being? Because that's got to be so important for you. I get up early. I swim. I love to swim laps early, early in the morning. I love to write or meditate. And I also, I've learned more and more, especially through the pandemic, that if I am not plugged into my community, I'm not well. So increasingly, I'm trying to find more ways to plug in. I'm also, though, to your question at the beginning about work to live or live to work, I am a live to work person. And so if I'm having a bad day and I've screwed up my self-care, often work will bail me out which I'm very grateful for. I don't, I think that's um, a privilege that I have. Well, Sarah, it's always a pleasure to get to hang out with you, to get to see you. What's up next for you? What's on your mind? Where are you going? What are you thinking about? What's top of mind for you? We are really excited that after so many years of not being able to bring people together in a physical space, that we have a safe plan to resume our physical summit this year. And a lot of our energy and thought process right now is going into designing breakthrough solutions that we can share with our members. When we can all get back together, it's going to be a homecoming and really help them. I think people are still curious and I think people are still courageous and we are too. And so if we can all get together in a space, we're going to be in Chicago, August 29th through September 1st at the Fairmont downtown. And and we're going to be talking about how to deliver more effectively on exactly what you and I were just talking about. Pay equity, psychological safety, mental health, better cultures, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and then bringing some really powerful voices to our stage to do that. So we're really excited. And we're going to keep on this track of helping our members understand safety. Every single training that we've built for the year is around psychological safety, trust, and positive cultures for those things. And we think that's a good baseline for moving forward. Well, I like a leader who knows what she wants in this world, and you are laser focused on it. I'm so honored that you came on the podcast. It was great to see you, and we will make sure we have all your good stuff in our show notes. So thanks again for being a guest. Thank you, Laura, for having me. It was great to speak with you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. We are proudly underwritten by the Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Punk Rock HR is produced and edited by RepCap with special help from Michael Thibodeau and Devin McGrath. For more information, show notes, links, and resources, head on over to punkrockhr.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. <laughs>